Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello, and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. I'm Chad Bray, senior business reporter for the South China Morning Post. This week, we saw U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken invoke the Mutual Defense Treaty with the Philippines, in which the U.S. would defend against Chinese attacks in the South China Sea. And that came as Filipino fishermen renewed their complaints against Chinese Coast Guard ships who are threatening them in their traditional fishing waters. And at the same time, news organizations around the world published satellite images of Chinese boats pumping tons of raw sewage and damaging coral reefs in the region. And all of this comes as we mark the fifth anniversary of an international ruling on the South China Sea. And in the past five years, China has continued to reject that ruling. We'll be hearing from Beijing-based correspondent Sarah Zhang with analysis about this ongoing geopolitical contest. But first, we'll discuss the Washington statement that shocked senior American business leaders here in Hong Kong. The situation in Hong Kong is deteriorating, and the Chinese uh, government uh, is not keeping its commitment that it made how it would deal with, with Hong Kong. And so it is more of an advisory as to what may happen. In, on Hong Kong. It's as simple as that and as complicated as that. Talking with Hong Kong desk editor Denise Jung about why Biden's warning is shocking and what this means for American companies based here in Hong Kong who want to do business with China. There's a lot to discuss, so let's get to it. Hi, Denise. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Chad. Now, we want to uh, uh, focus in on sort of what we expect to come from Biden. We're, we're on Hong Kong time, so uh, the administration hasn't issued its warning yet, but we do expect it in the, in the next few hours. What do you expect uh, the Biden administration will say about Hong Kong? Well, we're expecting a business advisory to be issued overnight, just focusing on warning American companies uh, investing or even operating in Hong Kong that the risks are rising. So when Biden talks about the risk of doing business here in Hong Kong, what exactly is he saying by that? Well, it means the risks associated with the deteriorating autonomy in Hong Kong given or mandated by the one-country-to-system principle. And um, Biden's administration has been blaming this national security law that Beijing imposed in Hong Kong in June last year on eroding or even undermining Hong Kong's rule of law. You've been talking to a lot of American business leaders. You've been talking to people with AmCham and, and, and others here in Hong Kong. What are they saying about this and, and this expected announcement? I think two things. One, that they really concern about the possible impact that the national security law will bring to Hong Kong, especially the investment confidence. But on the other hand, they are just surprised at the business advisory because they didn't expect that Biden will take 
the confrontational approach that Donald Trump did previously. And um, they have been operating in Hong Kong for that case. And they know the risks. They know the operations. They know the rule of games here. That's why they, they don't think that the business uh, risks are rising. Yeah. And as an American, you know, uh, I haven't traveled home in a while because of the pandemic. But the last time I was home, there was really a, a sense of disconnect between what Americans on the ground here in Hong Kong were feeling versus what Americans were feeling in the U.S. about China. So what are you hearing from business leaders? Was this just not something that they expected in terms of the reality of the situation? Well, some business leaders I talked to, they're just uh, surprised, you know, at the entire thing. And one of them was saying they don't know. I mean, they say Washington really had no idea on what happened on the ground in Hong Kong because they're so far away and something or news or even something in Washington could have been exaggerated. So they, they have been saying Washington people don't have an idea on international business or even on what's going on here. Yeah, and, and in addition to sort of the, the U.S. reaction what are business leaders concerned about operating in Hong Kong? We've certainly had a lot of changes, whether it's the national security law, it is the uh, Beijing implementing an anti-sanctions law, or uh, the anti-doxing policy that some people say in Hong Kong will lead to you know, shutting down different parts of the internet in the city. Well, in terms of the doxing situation, the government wrote out a bill uh, two nights ago, and basically it addresses to some extent the concern of some social media companies uh, originated from America. And um, previously, the um, Prophecy Commission was saying um, the local staff of these companies could be liable to any offenses if they fail to take off any doxing content. But uh, now, these staff who don't have any authority to remove this content is off uh, the, the net. So basically, it's kind, it, um, the concerns is partly addressed. But still, all the platforms operators have to comply with this law, which means that whenever the Privacy Commissioner issue any orders for them to take off any content that deem illegal or uh, offensive, they have to do it. And Denise, I want to dial down a little bit on this. So what are some of the uh, social media companies that, you know, could be affected or there's been concern about? And, you know, what are their sort of operations here? Do they have data centers or is it more marketing offices? And, you know, particularly we, we saw some reports today here in Hong Kong suggesting that the law could take down some entire sites such as Facebook. Well, we know some social media companies like Facebook, Google, Yahoo, Twitter, and even LinkedIn, those companies through an industry alliance called Asia Internet Coalition, which is based in Singapore, they previously flagged that they're concerned about the local staff in Hong Kong because they fear that the original legal framework will target their staff. That is, if the staff couldn't remove any doxing content by on time, they could be facing any legal liabilities. But, but uh, the latest arrangement, according to the bill, is these local staff, if they don't have any authority to remove this content, they are not liable to any liabilities. So it looks like this major concern is addressed. But what about this threat that the government could take down all of Facebook for everyone in Hong Kong? Well, this is pretty unlikely. 
because according to a source with Facebook, they are headquartered in the U.S. and even their regional offices are in Singapore. It's not in Hong Kong. They do have people or staff in Hong Kong, but they are not operating anything out of Hong Kong. So technically and in legal terms, they are not liable to the uh, the terms set out on the ISP. So uh, I don't think they have any uh, major issues like that. But there have been reports out there that, you know, th- this anti-doxing law could be sort of the first step to a version of the Great Firewall uh, for Hong Kong. So the Great Firewall, which restricts ac- access to certain websites within China and has, you know, been used to call speech. At the same time, we've seen TikTok delete its app from Hong Kong. So, you know, what does this mean? Are, are we really about to take sort of this next step? Well, down to the road, I won't dispute this trend. But from the academics that I've talked to, they generally say that the near term or immediate sign is the freedom of speech is curbed in Hong Kong. And even journalists could, could get into trouble into this doxing law or anyone in Hong Kong who discloses people's um, personal data without consensus. That's an offense already. Yeah, we, we've already seen that with uh, the prosecution of the RTHK producer um, when it came to, you know, what was generally a public database. And so, Denise, to, to continue talking about this doxing law, um, when does it go into effect? When is it going to be signed into law? Well, the government plans to table it by the end of the electrical section in October. It's not far away. Okay. Well, we, we will look for more analysis and coverage f- from your end. Thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. Thank you, Chad. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com newsletters. To understand some of the heated rhetoric this week about the South China Sea from the U.S., Canada, and China, let's go back to 2013. Back then, the president of the Philippines was Benigno Aquino III, and that was the year the Philippines brought a case to the International Criminal Court in The Hague. They were filing against China's claims to the South China Sea and the Nine Dash Line, which roughly covers 85% of the South China Sea. Three years later, in 2016, the Philippines won the case. But now there's a new president, a man named Rodrigo Duterte. Beijing has always rejected this ruling, calling it, quote, illegal and invalid, end quote. In fact, here's China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, back in 2016. With regard to such an arbitration case that involves far-fetched procedural and legal application and has so many flaws in ascertaining evidence and facts, the Chinese people do not accept it at all. And anyone across the world who upholds justice shall not agree with it. By not accepting or participating in the arbitration, China is in fact safeguarding the international rule of law and regional rules. Here we are in 2021, five years after the ruling was made, and the Philippines and China are once again making headlines over this dispute. But we've also heard Canada and a number of other countries making public statements, urging China to comply with the ruling. And as I've said at the start of this podcast, we have the U.S. Secretary of State invoking a treaty signed in 1951 that says America will go to war with China if it attacks the Philippines. And just this week, 
Here's China's spokesman for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Zhao Linjian. He's reiterating China's rejection of the ruling. China will firmly defend its sovereignty, rights, interests, and security in accordance with the law, firmly protect the friendly cooperative relations with regional countries, and firmly safeguard peace and stability in the South China Sea. We have uh, Sarah Zheng joining us uh, right now, calling in from Beijing to analyze what's going on in the South China Sea. Sarah, you've published two articles this week focusing on not just the Philippines, but also on Vietnam and Taiwan and uh, their issue with China over the South China Sea. Uh, Could you take us through a little bit of what you found and what you've reported this week? Okay, sure. So I guess we'll talk first about the five-year anniversary of the South China Sea Tribunal Award on July 12th. As you said, a number of countries put out statements on this key date, including the U.S., Canada, Japan, and Australia, that called on China to abide by the decision handed down at The Hague in 2016. And the U.S. in particular not only affirmed this decision, but also reiterated that a potential attack in the South China Sea would fall under U.S. treaty obligations with the Philippines, which is a clear sign to China that the Biden administration is continuing the previous Trump administration's policy when it comes to the South China Sea and U.S. efforts to counter Chinese influence in the region. Beijing, of course, is not happy with this, And the Chinese foreign ministry has been repeating its position that it sees the tribunal award as a piece of waste paper and accusing the U.S. of being the one who's causing instability in the South China Sea. Um, We also saw these tensions play out on the day of the anniversary when the Chinese military accused a U.S. warship, the USS Menfold, of, quote, trespassing into Chinese territory when it passed by the Parasol Islands which is claimed by Beijing, Vietnam, and Taiwan in the South China Sea. The U.S. countered by saying it's just a regular freedom of navigation operation meant in part to challenge Chinese claims around the parasols, which Chinese officially, China officially refers to as the Shiza Islands. Within all that, you know, Beijing has continued to assert its claims to the South China Sea and the islands uh, over the past five years. What's the reality of, of that word assert? Can you sort of unpack that for us? So in recent years, um, we've seen China become increasingly aggressive in staking out its claims in the South China Sea, from creating artificial island outposts to how it strengthened its military and coast guard capabilities in the region. In January, China actually passed a new law that explicitly allows its coast guard to fire on foreign vessels and to demolish structures in disputed waters. It's essentially asserting China's sovereignty by all means necessary. So for neighboring countries like the Philippines, of course, there are concerns that this would empower the Chinese Coast Guard to become what many fear is now acting like a maritime militia of sorts. So what we're seeing is that China is just much more comfortable with making its presence known in disputed waters, and they don't seem like they'll be backing down anytime soon. I want to go back to sort of what the Secretary of State Blinken uh, said, where he invoked uh, the Mutual Defense Treaty. And he's essentially threatening a war potentially with China. So you're in Beijing. What are you seeing in state media? What, What are they sort of saying about this? Well, so Blinken is saying that if China attacks the Philippines and the South China Sea, then the U.S. will be obligated to step in to defend its treaty ally. And this is something the U.S. has said before, actually. 
the Trump administration said it in 2019 and 2020. China obviously always responds very strongly. This time, um, the Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman, Zhao Jin, he came out. He's well known for his anti-U.S. hawkish statements. And he said that the U.S. has been abusing this bilateral military agreement with the Philippines to threaten this use of force against China and that the South China Sea should not be this sort of hunting ground for the U.S. to seek geopolitical self-interest. Chinese state media played that statement up, and also there was a commentary by Wu Shichun, who is the president of China's National Institute for South China Sea Studies. He said that the U.S. and other Western countries have been trying to contain China through this issue, and they're using things like the arbitration award for their ulterior motives here. I wanted to circle back uh, about sort of what's being said, you know, from Manila about this, you know, is is, is President Duterte, uh, what's his stance on this? What's he saying? Before the five-year anniversary, the Philippines foreign minister, uh, Teddy Loxon Jr., he put out a video about the tribunal decision. And he said, you know, it was a milestone in the international rule of law. It was essentially a gift that the Philippines had given the world and that it had conclusively settled the status of historic rights and maritime entitlements in the South China Sea. But this issue itself, despite this kind of rhetoric, has been really tricky for President Duterte because he's come under a lot of pressure domestically because his critics say that he hasn't taken significant action in actually enforcing the tribunal decision. So he took office in June 2016, which was right before the tribunal announced this judgment. And very shortly afterward, he went to Beijing to meet with China's president, Xi Jinping. And while he was in China, he described the award as just a piece of paper and one that would take a backseat in subsequent discussions with China. So his approach to foreign policy has been to really cultivate strong economic relations with China. And he's been very anti-U.S which we saw recently when he tried to terminate the visiting forces agreement with the U.S. that is actually anchored on the mutual defense treaty we've been talking about. Do you have a sense of what this might mean for the upcoming elections in uh, next year in the Philippines? Mm-hmm. So actually Duterte himself has floated the idea of becoming vice president or running for vice president next year. And his daughter, Sarah Duterte, is also a leading contender right now in the polls. So it matters what his position is on the South China Sea, which will definitely become a major issue in the election next year. Um, There is a lot of pressure rising, particularly from the defense establishment in the Philippines, which is very pro-U.S., and they want Duterte's administration to do more to enforce this tribunal ruling and to push back on China in the South China Sea. So there are these domestic factors at play that will definitely put pressure on candidates including potentially Duterte and his daughter, to speak out on this issue. He himself, though, is still quite reluctant because any acknowledgement that, you know, he hasn't been doing enough obviously is saying that his sort of appeasement policy has failed. So he is not likely to do that, but there will definitely be pressure on all the candidates to address it. Sarah, we heard Wang Yi say uh, back in 2016, quote, anyone across the world who upholds justice shall not agree with it. End quote. So does any country agree with China's stance on the South China Sea? 
Well, so China says that its sovereignty claims are backed by international law, but of course, the other claimants in the South China Sea, like the Philippines, Malaysia, and Vietnam, they would disagree, of course. There are countries that agree with China that the disputes should be just between China and those claimant countries, and that they should be resolved between them through dialogue and consultation. So, for example, within the ASEAN, which is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, there are more China-friendly countries like Cambodia and Laos that think that this South China Sea issue should not become a broader ASEAN issue and should be one that China resolves individually with these countries and that outside countries, namely the U.S., should not get involved. So to circle back on that, I want to ask, what are you seeing on uh, Chinese social media uh, when it comes to sort of reaction to the American response, but also, you know, some of the things we're seeing, uh, you know, from other countries within the South China Sea? Well, on Chinese social media, there is this standard reaction whenever it comes to these issues that China considers its core issues. So, of course, Chinese nationalists will very readily hop on board to condemn what they see as U.S. hypocrisy on this issue. Um, and, and a lot of comments actually are now quoting Xi Jinping's July 1st speech for the 100th anniversary of the Communist Party when he said, China you know, would never allow anyone to bully, oppress, or subjugate China, and anyone who dares to try to do that will have their heads bashed bloody against this great wall of steel. So that type of imagery, definitely people are invoking that. But I guess we have to keep in mind that Chinese social media is also really tightly regulated. We can only see these types of views. And you mentioned other countries' social media as well. For example, the Philippines foreign minister, he is very active on Twitter. He's tweeting constantly. And a lot of the responses to the tribunal award anniversary that day were obviously in um, in support of the Philippines, hoping that they can do more to assert their claims over what they call the West Philippine Sea. And Joshin took us through sort of the translation about the uh, bloodied heads and the history of, of that commentary and, and how it's been used a, a few weeks ago on the podcast and, frankly, how a number of the Western media didn't quite get it. The translation was a little bit off. Uh, so that, it's interesting that they've gone back to that on Chinese social media. Uh, Sarah, this has been a, a really interesting discussion. I wanted to ask you sort of what should we be looking out for next or what's coming up on, on the next issue we should focus on around the South China Sea? So actually, we should be expecting talks between China and the Southeast Asian nations this month and then throughout the rest of this year on code of conduct in the South China Sea. So this is something that they've been working on for nearly two decades, talking about since 2002. There has been some impetus to try to finish this by the end of this year, but it looks like that probably won't be able to happen or that there can't be substantial progress, especially because there's just a misalignment on expectations where people just can't agree on, you know, what type of agreement there should be, if this will be binding or non-binding, and how this can actually shape uh, norms of governance in the South China Sea. So not that optimistic there. Sarah, that's excellent. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we look forward to seeing more of your coverage on scmp.com. Take care. Thanks for having me. all for China geopolitics this week. We'll be keeping an eye out for Biden's warning later today and how it might impact American businesses here in Hong Kong. When Biden does make his statement, we'll of course have more coverage and analysis on scmp.com. 
Also, we'll be in the lookout for more analysis on what this means for Hong Kong and its relationship with America. And all of this comes just two days after the U.S. Senate passed the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act on Wednesday. If signed into law, it would ban the import of all products from the Xinjiang region. There's a lot going on. If you want to see the latest updates, check us out on Twitter. You can follow the SEMP Political Economy Desk at SEMP Economy, and I'm at Chad Bray. We'll be back next week to bring you more reports and analysis. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.